Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today is part two of a double episode on leadership lessons from the Lewis and Clark expedition. I brought back Jeff Tun to continue the story. He teaches leadership to IT professionals. He's an expert on the Lewis and Clark expedition, having personally traveled much of the trail. And he's a great storyteller. When we left off last week, the expedition had traveled up the Missouri and spent their first winter at Fort Mandan on the Great Plains. Note that this episode is much more than a history lesson. As we follow the adventures of the expedition, we will periodically pause to reflect on a leadership lesson or a decision made. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Jeff Tun. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Jeff Tun, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be back, Sean. Can't wait to finish the story. I know we left your listeners hanging on the edge of their seats. Yeah. In our last episode, we followed the Lewis and Clark expedition through the first few legs of their journey as they explored the American West. And they commissioned a group called the Corps of Discovery, led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. And they got all the way up the Missouri River to the Mandan villages and spent a winter. And as we left the last episode, they were about ready to embark on the part of the journey where they were going into territory that had never been explored before by European settlers or European explorers. They had a party of 33 members. One was a young Shoshone named Sacagawea, 16 years old, who was the mother of her young son, Jean Baptiste, who was about 55 days old, and her husband, Toussaint Charbonneau. Then there was Lewis Clark and the other members of the expedition, who I'm sure we'll talk about a few. So here they are, Jeff. They're about ready to head up the Missouri Talk a little bit about this next leg. What do they encounter? What do they learn in the first few months after they move up the Missouri from the Mandan villages? This is an incredible time of discovery because they really didn't know what was going to lie ahead. They encountered a lot of plants, a lot of animals that uh, European Americans had never seen before. And I want to get back just for a second on Sacagawea. I think it's important that here's this group of men that are going thousands of miles and you've got Sacagawea who's going thousands of miles carrying a baby on her back. Now that's endurance and that's strength. To me, it's mind-blowing having been out there and walked some of this terrain that she was able to do that. But anyway, one of the first things that they encountered, they'd encountered bison before this, but not the huge herds. It's just unimaginable numbers of bison that would cross the river where they could or cross the plains. There's a story from this time that I think this is the section where Lewis's dog, we mentioned in the last episode, Seaman, actually saves them because the bison were going to stampede right through their camp while they slept. And the dog attacked these bison and steered them away, so to speak. So just an incredible time. And you can imagine the majesty, if you will, of the scenery that they're seeing, the plains that stretch on forever. They've never seen anything like that before. They're used to the woods 
of the eastern United States and the horizon in the hills. And these are just flat plains for as far as the eye can see. You know, they had a good idea that uh, they were going to encounter the Yellowstone River. The Mandan had told them about the Yellowstone River before, and they felt like that was a really, really good landmark. The next real significant landmark that they were anticipating seeing was the Great Falls. They were told about the waterfall on the Missouri, and I know you talked about that in our first episode. But as they're traveling along, they enter this area that today is known as the White Cliffs. It's hard to describe, but Lewis did an amazing job of describing the scenes of visionary enchantment. And he describes it as uh, rock formations that look like an architect designed them. And in fact, as you travel through that area, there are rock formations that now have names. There's one called the cathedral because it looks like a church. There's another one that I think is uh, the citadel because it's got that shape and that appearance. They were just astounded by it. I've floated that section of the Missouri. Now, I was going downstream, not upstream, just for the record. It's one of those areas of our country where you get dropped off and you tell somebody you're going to appear again in three days. And if, if you don't show up, they're coming looking for you because there's no way in and no way out except by water. But they're floating through that and uh, they come out the other side and they come to a fork in the road. They come to two rivers that look equal in size, equal in flow, and one heads continues west and one starts, one veers to the south, one of the the forks. And so, yes, it wasn't really a fork in the road, but it was a fork in the river. The Mandans hadn't told them about this fork. They had no idea that they were going to encounter this. Historians today when they're recounting that story, they'll tell you, well, that's because the Mandan and Hidatsa didn't travel by water. They'd probably never been there before. They traveled by horseback. And so they'd never floated down the river to see this. So it becomes this amazing story and incredible leadership lessons for where do you go? What fork do you take? It's early July, but they're already starting to see some snow-capped mountains, which signifies to them that those mountains are a little bigger than they thought they were going to be. Choosing the wrong way would probably mean that the expedition would not be successful, and it could lead ultimately to their death. They do something and stop, and they spend time exploring, first of all, down one channel and then down the next channel, and they would send out groups of men to explore. They'd come back, they'd reconvene, and they'd share notes. And they did this a couple of times and then they'd switch the groups and they'd send, well, you went down this channel this time, Sean. So now you're going to go down this channel. And the captains were kind of leading this as well, but they couldn't come to a decision. What was interesting was the two captains believed the channel that went south was the proper channel of the Missouri River. Every other one of the men thought the channel that headed west was the channel the Missouri River. Yet they heard and listened to all the feedback from the men, and ultimately they made the decision that they were going down the South Channel. The men went along with them. They said, basically, captains will follow you anywhere. We're going to follow you in that direction. We don't agree with you, but we're going to follow you. 
it wasn't until some time later that they were validated in their decision when Lewis encountered a waterfall. Then they knew that they were on the right path. So one of the most incredible things about leadership, and the lesson here that I draw from this is a leader seeks input. They spent three or four days exploring and gathering input and the opinions of those around them. And the other thing is sometimes as leaders were called upon to make the decision, even when everybody else disagrees with them. But they did something else that I think is vital when you have to make decisions of that nature. They explained why. They said, this is why we think that channel is the right channel. It was clearer. The water was colder, which told them it was coming from the mountains. And there were several other aspects that they rattled off, but they explained why. So while the men may not have agreed, they at least understood the logic behind it. This is such a great example of a quality decision process. First, they recognized that this was an existential decision. The fate of the expedition really rested on whether or not they got this right. Then they paused. They took the time to gather information. They got all the relevant facts about the direction of the rivers and the flow and the color. And they seeked out the input of the expedition members. And when it came time to make a decision, Lewis and Clark went against the opinion of every other member of the expedition, yet they took the time to explain the decision, their reasoning behind it, which was so critical. And the men cheerfully agreed to follow the decision of their leaders. In the end, they got it right. Fantastic example of leadership decision-making. So what happens next? That gets us to one of the incredible points of this journey, Sean, and, it, and that's the falls. The Mandans had warned them about the falls, and they had determined that it was going to take them a couple of days to portage around this waterfall. What the Mandan hadn't really told them was there was not one. There were five huge waterfalls. They would spend 28 days portaging around those waterfalls to get to the other side. We're in the area of Great Falls, Montana today. And that journey of taking this waterborne group across this terrain for miles up and down these huge ravines, pulling the boats, they manufactured wheels out of some, I think, cottonwood trees that were nearby. And so they turned their boats into land craft, loaded them up and started pulling them all the while having to step on prickly pear cactus that penetrated their moccasins because their boots were long gone by now. Just an incredible story of perseverance and strength of attitude and commitment to the mission to traverse this portage around those falls. Just amazing part of the story. This delay, by the way, was really a big deal because they wanted to get over the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific and back in one year. And to spend 28 days to get around these falls, they realized it was starting to set in. They may not get back to St. Louis before winter set in. And that has all kinds of implications for the party. They also could see these mountains. You mentioned them, but they're looming and they're moving closer to these mountains. And these mountains are bigger than anything they've ever seen before. The river keeps heading towards the mountains. In fact, outside of Great Falls, it goes straight towards the Rocky Mountains and actually goes into a section of the Rocky Mountains there. When Lewis and Clark 
got to that point, they called that particular place the Gates of the Rocky Mountains. One thing they didn't encounter on the plains were Native Americans. So what was going on there? Why did they not encounter Native Americans? Well, I can't explain why the Native Americans didn't make contact, but we know from Native American tradition and storytelling that the Native Americans knew they were there. They were watching them. Blackfeet probably were watching them. Some of the other tribes were watching them. We think that one of the reasons that they didn't approach them was exactly that decision that we talked about last episode of taking Sacagawea and a baby with them. Obviously, this was not a war party coming up river if they had a woman and a child with them. So they probably just decided it wasn't worth their time to do anything with this group. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is by this time in the expedition, they've been out on the plains for a long time. The skin that's exposed probably is looking about the same as the skin of a Native American. It's got that deep tan, the deep, some deep redness that is similar to that. And in fact, I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit. When they do finally encounter Native Americans, Lewis has to roll up his sleeves to show them that he's a white man to get their attention, right? So that I think all of those factors were part of why they didn't. The other thing is the, the Native Americans were involved in their own hunting cycles. It gets hot on the plains. They were probably up in the mountains where it's cooler. And so they migrated with the weather as well. So there probably was sparsely inhabited like it is today, but some of it was they were just watching it and keeping an eye on it. So as the expedition went through the gates of the Rocky Mountains and into a deep valley, I would say, a gorge kind of cut into the Rocky Mountains there, talk to us, what happened as they go through that section of the Missouri and beyond? The water begins to get shallower, right? They're moving up, up into the mountains. After they pass the gates of the mountains, they come to a place called Three Forks. And it's really where three rivers come together to form the Missouri River. And so they named them the Jefferson, the Gallatin, and the Madison. So they were faced again with a decision about what stream to take. They opted for the one that headed more directly into the mountains. It was the right choice. I think it was the Jefferson. What finally happens is they get to a point where they can no longer float their boats, uh, right? The, the water is just too shallow. They pulled them as far as they can. They're trying to find the Shoshone. They haven't had any contact with any Native Americans since they left. Finally, Lewis gets to this point where the Missouri, as he was calling it, was just a trickle of water coming out of the rocks. The river just stops. The water's coming out of the rocks. And here is this little stream of water. And the men would stand astride it, one foot on each side, standing astride the great Missouri River. What they discover very quickly is that the Continental Divide is about a quarter of a mile up from where they are. And I've stood there and it is up from there. So they get to the divide and put yourself in Lewis's place, right? This is something that he has been envisioning for at least 10 or 12 years of his life. He was going to be the great explorer of his generation. He was going to find the water route to the Pacific Ocean. So can you imagine the excitement as he's cresting that last quarter mile and getting ready to cross this divide? You know, the pounding in his heart. And he crests that when he looks out across and he doesn't see the Columbia River watershed. He sees instead mountain range after mountain range 
after mountain range. Oh my God, just the stun that there was no water route, no easy water route to the Pacific and that their lives now hung in the balance. To me, this is another critical leadership decision point. They could have stopped. They could have turned back. Their primary mission was to see if there was a water route. They now knew there wasn't one. Yet, they also knew the grander vision that Jefferson had set out. And armed with this new information, they could have gone back to Jefferson and said, okay, boss, what do you want me to do now? Instead, they knew the vision and they knew Jefferson would want them to continue. And so they continued. And all of the men and the woman went with them. No one dissented. Everybody by this time had bought into that mission and that vision of what they were trying to achieve. And even though they were facing death yet again, they decided to proceed on. Just an amazing display of commitment to the vision and the mission. I totally agree. And I think it's a great example of the power of vision, where Jefferson laid out this vision. We want you, Meriwether Lewis, to lead a party across the Pacific and back to establish a water route if possible, to encounter the Native American tribes and document and establish peace. And he had a number of sort of things he wanted the expedition to accomplish, but the greater vision of getting to the Pacific and back was a part of that vision. And even though they couldn't establish the water route, they knew at that moment they wanted to achieve the larger vision. I agree that they were bought in. They were all in at this point. And there's a great example of that shortly after they get across the Rocky Mountains, they do encounter a tribe, the Shoshone. And during that first encounter, Lewis knew how important it was to make contact. And he was worried the Shoshone were going to be too fearful to encounter them or maybe would come in a more belligerent way. And so he lays his gun down on the ground. The chief and the warriors are there to encounter them. And they're obviously coming to this encounter ready for a fight. Lewis puts his gun down and walks towards them. With, and it very well could have been the end of him right there. And that's just another example of just being all in. And I think this is where he also uh, rolled his sleeves up so that they could see. I think that's the incident. So this is the Shoshone, the same tribe that Sacagawea had originally was also Shoshone. So talk a little bit about that encounter. So I mentioned at the end of our last episode about one of the greatest coincidences in American history. They encountered the Shoshone. Keep in mind, first tribe that they had seen since they left the Mandans the previous spring. And so they encountered them and they desperately needed horses to get across the mountains. It was vital to their success. So they gather in this circle with the Shoshone chief and some of the warriors, as well as the corps and the sergeants, and they begin the negotiation. Now, keep in mind, this negotiation had to go from English to French to Mandan to Shoshone and back as they went through the translators to, in order to communicate. And they tell this story of all of a sudden, in the midst of this negotiation, Sacagawea jumps up and runs around across the circle and throws her arms around the Shoshone chief and begins to cry. And they're like, what is going on? Well, as it turns out, 
I mentioned last time that Sacagawea was kidnapped from the, the base of the Rocky Mountains. That's how he, she came to become Charbonneau's wife. She was actually a, a victim. But when she was there and had gotten kidnapped, her little brother was there too. And she thought her little brother had been killed in that raid. Well, her little brother grew up to be the chief of the Shoshones. And so needless to say, they got the horses because here was the chief and it was Sacagawea's brother, Camille I think was his name. That's a great example of, again, the importance of Sacagawea being a part of the Corps of Discovery and the potentially unintended consequences, but the good fortune that that led to her presence in the Corps just tended to, along the way, lead to good outcomes. I think it's a part of a wider story of America, our country, that the power of our country comes from its diversity. And here was a party that for its time was quite diverse. The power of that diversity, the power of having multiple backgrounds and experiences and opinions and perspectives all coming together, working together as one group. It's really a fascinating story to dig into her. I don't think her contribution was near as the romanticized film versions of this young Native American woman leading them across the wilderness, but she did play incredibly pivotal and important roles at many times throughout the expedition. I don't believe they would be successful without having her along. I think she was that pivotal to what they were doing. So they were successful in trading for the horses. They get a number of horses. I think it's interesting that Sacagawea could have stayed, I assume, with that tribe, but she stayed with the party and they continued on to find a way through these rocky mountains. So what happens next? Where do they go from there? Not only did they get horses, but they also got a guide from the Shoshone. They called him Old Toby because they couldn't pronounce his Native American name. But they head off and they cross the Bitterroot Valley. They still haven't really ascended the heights of the Rockies yet. I mean, they're high up, don't get me wrong. But they stop at a place called Traveler's Rest that is right at the foot of what is known today as the Lolo Trail near Missoula, Montana. And they camp for a few days, preparing for the journey across these huge mountains. There's snow. They can see it. They know they're going to be going through it. So they take a time out. And I think I think one of the lessons there for leaders today is if you know that you've got this huge challenge ahead, allow yourself and allow your team time to rest, to build up those energy stores, to tackle the next piece the next section of the journey, so to speak. But they head out. The next weeks are some of the most difficult travel that they've had. The snow is up to the chest of the horses. It's cold. It's sleeting. It's icing. They're out of food because they can't find food to hunt because everything's gone down out of the heights of the mountain or gone to hibernation for the winter. They are literally starving to death. They begin to uh, use their horses for food. I forget exactly how long it took, 12, 14 days, something like that, to cross this last section. I stood at that pass in July one year, and there was snow on the ground in July. Finally, they come stumbling near death out of the mountains across what is now 
what the Native Americans then called in what we call today, Weite Prairie. And they encounter the Nez Perce Native Americans, Nez Perce tribes. The tribes uh, nursed them back to health because they were close to starving. It had taken a couple of days longer, they would have started losing some of the expedition. Historians generally mark this point as being the, the point along the trail where the Corps was its most vulnerable. Coming out of the mountains, starving, they were weak. Once again, there's a story here I, I want to bring out about a woman in the Nez Perce tribe who, as they showed up in the prairie there, and the Nez Perce as naturally would start to talk amongst themselves and say, what are we going to do about this party that's come out of the woods? They had no idea this party was Europeans was going to walk out of the mountains into their land. They thought, well, should we just kill them? Or should we allow them? Should we make friends with them? And this woman said, we should make friends with this tribe. And when she explained the reasoning, she had also been kidnapped earlier in her life and brought, I believe it was up to Canada, she was kidnapped by another Native American tribe and then eventually kind of sold to or escaped to somehow encountered a group of Europeans who treated her well. And she eventually made her way back to her tribe. She always remembered that kindness and that kindness was repaid when she convinced her tribe to make peace with the Corps of Discovery and to nurse them back to health. And that's exactly what happened. And And so that's really the second time the expedition has been saved by a woman. So here they are, they're nursed back to health. They still need to make it to the Pacific. So where do they go from there? The Nez Perce teaches them how to make dugout canoes, how to make them faster and quicker, because as you may recall, we left all their boats behind. Now they wanted to travel by water again. I am sure they were very excited to be traveling downstream for the first time. So they build a flotilla of canoes and they set out again towards the Pacific Ocean. And this is the the Snake, the Clearwater, and finally the Columbia River. Not an easy journey even going downstream. The Columbia especially was filled with rapids. It was filled with waterfalls. You don't see many of them today because of the dams along the Columbia. But they navigate that. Sometimes with an audience of Native Americans watching them, thinking that there's no way these strangers are going to be able to make it down here in their boats, right? Because uh, of the waterfalls. And you almost feel like the Corps is so tired, so ready to be at the Pacific Ocean, that maybe they're taking a few more risks than they have in the past. But what they begin to encounter is Native Americans who had seen whites before. So all of a sudden, they're not quite so special as they once were out on the plains. So the cost of trade began to escalate because the Native Americans had been accustomed to trading with whites. They'd been coming up the Columbia River now for about 15, 20 years, probably, since Gray discovered the mouth of the Columbia. The relationship with the Native Americans began to change. But they finally make it through. They get to the point where... They believe they are now seeing the Pacific Ocean. And Clark writes in his journal, Ocean in view, oh, the joy. What they didn't realize is they still had a long way to go. That was the estuary of the Columbia River that they were seeing, kind of the backwater of the uh, Columbia River. But they do finally make it to where they are at the Pacific Ocean. And we've got a couple of great stories that we can pull out from this time, too, for some leadership lessons, Sean, as they 
finally make it to the Pacific Ocean. What I recall at this part of the journey that really struck me as far as leadership was this decision that presented itself, where are we going to stay for the winter? And when they got to the mouth of the Columbia, there were a few various points that they scouted out. They looked at three or four different areas and they weren't sure where to stay. What they did was really fascinating. They put it out to vote to the entire 33 members of the permanent corps. Maybe not Jean-Baptiste didn't pull a, a vote, the young boy, but they put it out to the members of the corps and they, they allowed everyone to vote. I think it's fascinating. First of all, it's the first example of voting where we have an African-American voting for this decision. We have a woman voting. It was equality. I also think it's interesting that if you go back to episode one, we talked about the fork in the Missouri and you know, which fork to go down. And you might recall they didn't put it out to vote, yet here they did. And I think what was driving the vote at this point was they really needed everyone to buy in to where they were going to spend the winter. They knew it was going to be a tough winter. They could already see how cold it was. You know, I live in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Oregon, so I know how brutal the winters can be, how dark, how rainy. In particular, where they are is one of the darkest and rainiest parts of the United States. They knew that they needed their team, their core, to buy into whatever location they picked. And when the party voted, they went with the vote and they built a yep. fort, right? Fort Clatsop right there. So what else happened that winter that might be of interest? I think the other important thing about the vote before we move on from that is they don't tell us why in their journals, but I think the lesson there for us is as leaders, sometimes we have to use different decision-making styles. There are some times when consensus can be a great tool for decisions, and there's other times like at decision point where you have to make the tough call. And they knew instinctively which was which. And the other thing I like to point out about that decision is there's going to be some who have never seen the mouth of the Columbia, Sean, and they may be picturing the river like here in Indianapolis where I'm sitting, the White River is uh, what, maybe a hundred feet across. So what difference does it make? What side of the river I camp on? The Columbia is two and a half miles across at that point. And the terrain is dramatically different north than south of the mouth. The Native American tribes were different north and south. So it was a huge decision. It wasn't any decision to take lightly, yet they knew that consensus would be the order of the day. So they built this fort, Fort Clatsop, near what is today Astoria, Oregon. The winter was brutal, as you alluded to. In the months that they were there, they write in their journals that there might have been five days where they saw the sun. Throughout the winter, their clothes are literally just rotting off of them from the dampness and the rain and the, the infestation of fleas in the fort. It was miserable. I think a couple of things happened that were kind of interesting. One was they were still a couple miles from the Pacific Ocean at this point, maybe five or 10 miles, I forget where they built the fort, but they built a salt works on the shore of the ocean where they were boiling the ocean water to make salt. Along about that time, they received word of a whale that had washed up on shore and was dead. And the word spread because the Native Americans would go harvest the blubber and the bones. There was this great encounter between the captains and Sacagawea because she wanted to go see the whale. 
because she'd come all this way and she was going to see that whale. And uh, she finally convinced him to let her walk that trail with them and see the ocean and see the whale. So again, it points out kind of her stature within the group by then that she was able to convince the captains that they needed to allow her to go. So this winter was just, they spent time with the Clatsop Indians. They were anxious to get home. They had hoped, part of their idea was perhaps they would find a sailing ship coming up to the mouth of the Columbia, and they'd be able to send at least part of the core and some of their discoveries back on the sailing ship. That did not happen. Now they're faced with the journey home. I'd love to point out one story from this time that really impacted my view of the captain. And here's what happened. And it's interesting to point out that this story is only told in the sergeant's journals. It's not told in either of the captain's journals. But they're trying to negotiate and trade for some canoes to head home. And their trade goods were just about gone. So they had enough trade goods to trade for one additional canoe. And they needed another one and uh, just could not convince the owner of the canoe to trade with them. So Lewis ordered some of the men to go steal the canoe. That may not sound like much to us, but these were probably very, very ornate canoes, given the the Clatsop tribe and uh, the other tribes in that area. The tree would have been undergone a blessing when they felled it to carve the canoe, and the canoe itself would have been had a blessing ceremony when they launched it. And later in life, the canoe would have been the burial casket for the owner. So it was a huge deal that they stole this canoe. And I find it interesting that Lewis doesn't write about it, never shows regret. I really think that he fell a few notches in the eyes of the men for having them do that. I think it impacted their relationship post-expedition after they got home. I think it was a huge piece. And I think there's a couple of lessons there for us as leaders is, first, the ends never justify the means. Our integrity is everything. And the second is leaders admit mistakes. We never see him admitting that that was a mistake, even talking about it. And I think had he done it and then admitted that it was wrong, that might have viewed him a little bit differently. But it's just this fascinating microcosm of decisions. And so they're they're now prepared to head home. It's still a fascinating story. And there's still stories we can learn about leadership on the way home. Do we know anything about Clark's involvement in that decision? Again, neither captain wrote in their journals about it. It only appeared in a couple of the sergeant's journals. So we don't really know what he thought or was feeling. I can only superimpose my thoughts based on reading the journals and what I think of Clark and what I think of Lewis. My perception is I think Clark thought it was a bad idea. That's my impression too. And I don't think we could emphasize enough the impact of this decision when it comes to integrity and character. This is the one point, because as you read the journals, you'll see so many principal decisions were made. So many mm-hmm. times they could have put their own interest above Native Americans. They could have put their own interest above other members of the expedition. And they, time and again, they seem to really live up to some sort of higher calling and values and integrity. And then we have this decision, and it very well could have impacted how things play out on the way home. So let's talk about 
where they go from here. Obviously, they get back up the Columbia River. They get back to the very foothills of the uh, Rocky Mountains, that same meadow we left them in last fall. They go back to that same meadow. They wait for the snow to melt. And it was a long time coming that particular summer. It just would not melt. They hired a group of young teenage Nez Perce to guide them back over the Lolo Pass. Maybe you could talk about that. Got back to the Nez Perce where they had left some of their horses, by the way, when they launched, and the Nez Perce cared for their horses during the winter. Against all advice from the Nez Perce, they headed out to cross the mountains again. This is the one and only time, as I recall, that they retreated. They actually realized uh, as they got partway that they had to turn around and go back and they would have to wait. And I think they waited two months before it was safe to cross, as I recall. But during this time, they really bonded with the Nez Perce. 200 years later, during the celebration of the, or the commemoration rather, of the journey, they called that event that was recognized on the commemoration, Summer of Peace, right? Because they really got to know that they, they engaged in games. There was a game that they played that was, basically it was the precursor to baseball. But they learned something that ended up changing the direction that they were going to head out. And that was they learned about a shortcut across the mountains that would take them directly to basically Great Falls, the areas around Great Falls. And so they laid out a plan during that time that they were going to split into four groups. Incredible risk to split into four groups. And so Lewis took a a group of the men and headed out across the shortcut. Clark took the remainder and headed back the way they came. And when they had crossed the mountains and got uh, to the headwaters of of the Missouri, they sent a group by boat down the Missouri. They sent a group by horseback along the Missouri. And then Clark and a smaller group set out to discover the Yellowstone River. They knew where it came in. To the Missouri, Sacagawea was familiar with the area, and this is probably one of the places where she guided them across to the Yellowstone. So you have these four groups that are now spread out. Unbelievable risk for a leader to make. Let's talk about that. Why do you think they took that risk? What was the calculated risk there? I think one of the reasons was, if you remember Decision Point, the Marias River that we talked about, the fork in the road. The way the Louisiana Purchase Treaty was written was basically, and trust me, I'm paraphrasing here, all lands drained by the Missouri River. And what they were hoping to find is that the Marias River actually turned north and went into Canada so that they could claim additional lands on behalf of the United States. So Lewis really wanted to do that. He really wanted to go back and see if that was the case. They really needed to go back the way they had come because they had a cache of goods that they had left on the other side of the mountains. In fact, a couple of caches that they needed to recover some of their discoveries. And so they had to divide into two groups if they were going to accomplish both of those things. The further division, I think, was a matter of expediency to get some of their goods downstream down the Missouri, as well as taking some of their horses down. So I think part of the decision that entered into it was that You know, we talked earlier about the stolen canoe incident and Clark's reaction. You could kind of see, again, this is Jeff projecting onto their relationship. Maybe Clark's a little tired of being around this dude and he's ready for a break. 
So he's ready to take a group and, and head off in a different direction. At this point, the entire section of their way home, there's a bit of an edge in the journals. Their relationship with the Native Americans had an edge. I think they were suffering from what we would call today burnout. And while this decision to divide up might have had several different reasons, I also felt, think it helped them re-energize a little bit because, hey, we've reinvigorated our vision. We've got something else to discover rather than just going back the way we came. So I think there was a lot that played into that decision. Yeah, and maybe just breaking up into smaller groups, working in a smaller group might have reinvigorated some of the men. They make a agreement to meet at a point, and that point is the the point where the Yellowstone meets the Missouri River. Let's talk about Lewis's party as he goes to an area that was controlled by the Blackfeet. He has, I believe, four men with him, four or five men. They encounter a small party of Blackfoot Indians. They made the decision, and I find this really fascinating, they made the decision to, once they both made visual contact, it's almost as if both parties knew, well, we have to spend the night together. If we're over here sleeping and they're over there sleeping, then we're going to worry that they're going to attack us. And so there was already a natural tension in this relationship, and they decide to camp together. As they settle down for the night, they sleep with their weapons by their side. At some time during the night, Lewis gets awakened by one of the Blackfeet Braves is grabbing his gun. And so Lewis grabs the gun. I believe he was the first one that fired. One of the Fields brothers also fired a shot. Two of the Braves were struck. Lewis and his men took off as fast as they could. They hopped on their horses and they just took off across the plains, just knowing there was going to be a band of warriors descending upon them at any minute. Native American stories will tell us that those two young braves died. So the Lewis and Clark expedition, there's a famous book called Only One Man Died because they lost uh, Charles Floyd. We didn't really talk about that on their way up the Missouri, but that's not really the case. There was actually three men that lost their lives because of the Lewis and Clark expedition, two of them Blackfeet. So Lewis and his men take off and just are hell-bent on getting back to the Missouri River, right, to escape with their lives. So I think it's another example of what I was touching on earlier, that they were on edge. And no way of knowing what would have happened if uh, Lewis would have just said, okay, you can have my gun. Would it have been confrontational? Would it have ended the way it did? There's no way to know. That's revisionist history, right, to go back and change the story. But what we do know is he reacted immediately and fired and fields fired, and it ended up being tragic for the group of Blackfeet. The other thing that was interesting that happened during this time is uh, got back to the Missouri just as two of the groups were coming down. The group that had left on horseback got uh, the horses stolen on their way down. So they had joined up with the group that was on the river coming down the Missouri. And so just as they were coming downstream, Lewis and his party were getting to the Missouri River, another coincidence that they were right there at the same time. And so they joined up and traveled the rest of the way to the Yellowstone and were waiting on Clark. When uh, they sent out a hunting party, Lewis was one of them. Krizat, who didn't have great eyesight, thought he saw an elk in the brush and shot Meriwether Lewis, shot him in the, uh, in the buttocks, actually. And so when they meet up with Clark, 
Lewis is prone in the bottom of a canoe because he can't sit. And he travels that way from the Yellowstone River all the way to the Mandan villages, where we start to say goodbye to some of the folks. They make the decision to allow John Coulter to return with a group of uh, trappers who were heading upstream. And they allowed uh, Coulter to go with them, to go with the party of trappers on one condition, that no other person leave the group. So I think that's another testament to the group dynamics because the men could have complained vigorously that why does Coulter get to go back and I don't, but they didn't evidently because they let Coulter go. And there's some amazing stories in American history about Coulter as well that your audience might be interested in checking out sometime. But they make it back to the Mandan and Hidatsa villages. And this is where they part ways with uh, Charbonneau and Sacagawea and Jean-Baptiste, they called him Little Pomp. Little Pomp's now, what, a year and a half, almost two years old by the time they get back there. I'm sure there were tears shed about saying goodbye. Clark especially had formed a very tight relationship with Sacagawea, kind of a father-daughter type relationship. He was 20 years older than she was, something like that, a little bit more. And so he actually offered to raise her children, to raise Pomp back in St. Louis. And at that time, they said no. But a year or so later, after Sacagawea had another child, they brought their children to Clark, and he ended up raising them in St. Louis for them. So they had formed a very, very tight relationship. But they did make it back to St. Louis. They were hailed as heroes, long given up for dead. There were parties and galas in their honor and celebrations of such an accomplishment. Meriwether Lewis dies within three years of the expedition. It takes them almost nine years to publish the journals. A lot of their scientific and uh, natural discoveries were rediscovered during those nine years. And other people claimed the naming rights to rivers and streams and animals and plants that Lewis and Clark had first encountered and named for anybody else. But because they didn't publish, some of those discoveries are now attributed to other people. So it's an amazing journey. It really is. It's an incredible story. It's an amazing journey. There's so many lessons we can pull from it. I just want to encourage the audience to, if you're interested, Jeff, where could people learn more about the Lewis and Clark Expedition? There's a couple of great books. Probably the the one that's most famous is called Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. There's also a great film by Ken Burns, a documentary, Ken Burns, Dayton Duncan, Stephen Ambrose is featured in that film as well. So either one of those, whether you enjoy movies or whether you enjoy reading, those are great places. There's an abridged version of the journals if you want to read in their words, which uh, is sometimes difficult to do. Or if you're really brave, you can tackle the million plus words of their journals. They're online at the University of Nebraska. And you can read the whole thing from start to finish in their words, or you can read snippets and just uh, get a feel for their way of communicating. Jeff, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for being on The Good Life. Thanks for having me on the show, Sean. I really appreciate it. As you know, I just love uh, when you and I can talk about uh, Lewis and Clark and riff on the stories a little bit. Been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. 
Until next time, have a wonderful week.